Thank you for joining us on the Purpose and Principles podcast. My guest today is Jared Spataro, and he's the Corporate Vice President at Microsoft 365. In his current role at Microsoft, Jared's responsible for Microsoft 5, including the business management, product and partner marketing, and go-to-market programs. And he joined Microsoft in 2006, and he's focused on productivity and various marketing and product management business roles at the company over the last 13 years. And Jared, I know you're working on some incredible projects right now around how do we humanize people. And when people hear that, I bet they're thinking, wait, he works at Microsoft. Can you tell me what that means? You bet. Well, Max, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. It's, it's nice to have a conversation about these things. Yeah, I mean, what a what an incredible year it's been with 2020 and what an incredible moment, we would say. Yes. And, you know, as we take a step back, we're learning so much about all sorts of things we took for granted. We're learning a lot about, you know, how do people work together most most effectively? We're learning about, you know, how are people really resilient? And I think we're also learning a lot about people and technology. You know, all of a sudden, starting in March around the world, almost everything we did in our lives went digital. And so that's that's our starting point. We can get into it, but that's our starting point is what's happened, you know, over the last kind of nine, 10 months. What have we learned from having everything from bar mitzvahs to baptisms to church meetings to, you know, all sorts of business meetings to government proceedings to judiciary, like everything has gone digital. We feel like there's a lot for us to kind of unpack there. So that's, I hope, what we talk about today. Well, I would love that. In fact, like you said, I mean, it's anywhere from, like you said, a, 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 a wedding party to a birthday to a family reunion to all kinds of business meetings and strategy sessions all online. We've all had to become better at being online. What is that doing for us? And, and perhaps you can help me understand, what is the research telling you in our way forward in the way we work based on what we're experiencing today? Yeah, in, in March, you know, the experience my team and I had in, in March is we just decided the best thing for us to do was to consider ourselves fools for a moment, say, none of us know what's going on. All the all the things we thought we knew about people and technology, about the future of work, let's set those aside and let's just become students of the moment. Let's like watch what happens. As we've done that, I think we've been able to put ourselves a little bit more in context. The, the way I like to describe it now is to say, we are in the midst of a second very big digital transformation. The first one happened with the PC and continued with the smartphone. That was not two different things. That was two things, kind of you know, one thing strung together. And it really was about the digitization mostly of things that used to be paper. So we saw in business, for instance, you know, memos went to email. We saw that typed documents went to digital files. We just, you know, even as you think about the foils we used to use in an overhead, those went to PowerPoint slides essentially. But a lot of that first digital transformation was turning printed paper into ones and zeros. And that was interesting, you know. But but what we think we see happening now as students is that everything else, non-paper, is being transferred into a digital representation too. And that's now, you know, being a little bit more serious, you know, everything from court proceedings to government affairs to important business meetings, you know, to negotiations to family matters, like that's all gone digital, all has a representation in the cloud. And our big question that we've been asking ourselves is what's gotten better, you know, what are the wins and what's gotten worse? What are the losses? We've seen things like, you know, distance not mattering, physical space and proximity not mattering as much, huge win. Business travel is down, but we don't feel like necessarily, you know, connections have been severed. So that's great. But when we look at the, you know, the, the takes, if you will, in a puts and takes type of framework, 
Social capital is suffering. Connection is suffering. We certainly see people saying that they've never felt more disconnected from their team. Some of our research has shown up to 60% of workers around the world are saying that they just have feel more disconnected than they've ever felt. So there are these puts and takes. We think that there's a real opportunity to take a step back and say, gosh, what are we going to change? You know, what does this moment demand from us as we think about the future? And so what does that look like then? Because I, I'm, I'm with you. And I think, I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are saying, oh, I felt that, you know, like we, we can still connect. We still have Zoom, but I'm still feeling disconnected. And up to 60% of the people, like you said, are missing that human connection still. What does that look like? And, and as, as you talk about that, I'm also thinking about, you know, uh, the movie I recently watched called The Social Dilemma or everything being online and is anything private anymore or do we just expose ourselves to everything? And I mean, just so many questions, but let's start with what are the concerns you have when it comes to humanizing this experience? And maybe we'll, we'll just keep it going from there. Sure. Uh, let me zoom in maybe on business for a moment. We can, we can go broad again if you want to, but I think yeah. zooming in on business is a place I've spent Please. quite a bit of time. There's um, there's something that I call the productivity paradox that really popped, you know, probably four months, four, four to five months into this, where I realized, wait a second, I feel like the underlying kind of assumption of technology over the course of let's call it the last 30 to 40 years as it seeped into our lives, you know, and then kind of almost came like a flood into our lives. That underlying assumption was that we were trying to be as efficient as possible. What I mean by that is there was this time when people were like, wow, you know what? Like, it's hard for me to go see all my relatives. So it's efficient for me to have something like Facebook that allows me to have all these connections and keep up with them, even when I can't speak to them. Even the idea of like email being on your phone and always accessible is like, wow, isn't that, isn't that great? You can go to your kid's soccer game and important email comes in, you can answer it right then. Boy, how efficient. And I think what we've seen with the, with the uh, pandemic is we have essentially kind of taken all of that efficiency and that underlying assumption of efficiency, and we just sped it up. My sense is 10 months into this, we are now feeling like the equivalent of what would have been 10 years into it on its normal course and speed. And what's the effect of all that? Well, I would say that the effect is we are really realizing, you, no one needs to do research, but we have done research, but we're really realizing that, man, you don't kind of maximize the happiness of people, the productivity of organizations, the ability of groups to do real, accomplish real things. You don't maximize that by just making them more efficient. Efficiency is a component of what you do, but productivity is not solely about just being more efficient. It's actually about taking a step back and getting the most from what people are good at inherently, intrinsically. And there, as we've really taken some time, we've realized, boy, what are people good at? They're, they're ingenious. They, are, they bring an ingenuity, kind of a generalized problem solver skill to problems. They can adapt. They invent new things, they improve old things, they have this ability to imagine what the future should like, look like and then go make it so. And that kind of generalized capability of humans is super unique. We don't have anything like it in AI despite you know, the advances in AI that we have today. And we just have realized that technology should be here to serve the people kind of drawing on that ingenuity, to serve them to do amazing things. In their personal lives, if we jump outside of business, it should be here to serve them in the interests that are most important to them and connecting with their families and their community and things that matter. And it has not done that. Instead, you know, if I were to flip over what we see, I would just say, um, you know, everywhere we see people as essentially slaves to technology. And that's in a business setting and in their consumer lives. And I think it's time to change that. I think it's really time to have the technology serve us. And we've got to find the right principles to do that. Wow. I just, I mean, I'm nodding my head as you and I can see each other in this meeting. 
Uh, but for our listeners who can't see that, that body language that you and I are sharing, I'm just, I, 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 I can't agree more that we have, we have missed an opportunity and that efficiency piece, well, technology has enabled us to do that. It's been very, very powerful. There's also, like you said, being, becoming slaves to the technology. I would love to hear what you're thinking in terms of what the future looks like in that. What are the other pieces of research that you've done that have kind of helped you to come to this, this conclusion that, hey, we can do this differently and it has to be different in the future? Yeah, I guess I would step back and um, say, well, what is, you know, what traditionally has been the way that that firms, organizations have thought of productivity? Mm -hmm. And the simple formula has been essentially kind of your output over your input. You want to essentially get as much output as you can for as little input as possible. And when you think about machines, the kind of basic follow on from that is great. That means that we need to, you know, have them up and running as much as possible. We want to maximize kind of what they're able to kick out. You know, as you, as you think about things that way, that's a very, I would say almost 1950s, 1960s way of thinking about it. It was in some ways the pinnacle of the industrial complex. We had taken what had happened and thought to ourselves, oh, we've got the formula. Now we just need to do this at scale. I actually don't think that that's the way progress is made in the world though, because I think it's very myopic. I would, I would uh, formulate it this way and say, at some point for any particular innovation that you are trying to scale, you know, something that was amazing, let's say you have a factory that is doing great work, you know, churning out silicon wafers or even take it and be more low tech and talk about producing shirts. Of course, you start with this idea of you want to be as efficient as possible in producing your output. But ultimately, the way we drive progress, I would call it almost like a two-stroke engine and we come up with innovative ways to do the things we want to, and then we scale that innovation. And that kind of innovate and scale, innovate and scale, I think is actually the basic pattern that you see of true productivity, true productivity progress. And, and because of that, I think we just need to totally reframe you know, the way we use technology in our lives. Of course, technology can help us be efficient. Mm. It's awesome. But we should always be looking for technology to also help us innovate, come up with brand new ideas, new ways of doing things. That is the proper use of technology. And if we were to get very specific about humans, like how we operate, I think that high performance athletes have known for a very long time that humans operate kind of essentially in a cycle. Mm -hmm. You have peak performance and then you need to recover and rest and get ready. And trying to always operate at peak performance is no way to actually perform at your peak. And we just don't do that in business today. You know, we essentially ask our high performing CEOs and managers and, and workers, hey, just be always at your best, always doing, you know, as, as busy as you can be. That just doesn't work. If we want innovation, if we want true progress out of firms and out of our economy, I think we've got to take better care of our people. And technology can help us do that. And we can talk about that in a moment. Technology can really make a difference. But today, you know, I would almost um, quote Rousseau, you know, he said, man was born free and everywhere I see they're in chains, you know, and I just think, man, technology kind of has put us in that bind. We are really kind of subservient to tech in our lives and, uh, and, and at work because of the boxes it puts us in. Well, you're bringing up multiple, multiple pieces. I mean, we could go so many places in this conversation. I, I, I totally agree that the efficiency is not is 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 one component of it. Uh, but I'm right now coaching executives all over the country and frankly around the globe. In fact, I've been on on several coaching conversations this week with people who are really well compensated, and they manage large teams of tens of thousands of people. 
And they're frustrated. I've had a couple people even this week that are in tears about the work that's happening because they don't have enough hours in the day to get it all done all the time and they can't turn off. And they do feel like, where does this, where does this go? How do I recharge? Where do I find that recharge? Where do I get that pause? Where do I rehumanize? And they say that even, their, even all these meetings that they're having, they just go from meeting to meeting to meeting without any time to humanize the experience because everything's about the efficiency gains and about those last minute seconds that we have with each other. So what are you doing as a leader and as a manager to help your team feel that humanity behind what we're trying to do well, I smile, you know, again, not everybody can see us right now, but I smile because I'm really good at pointing out the problem. Now it's time to tell you what we're doing. It's hard. Um, and I, I have to, you know, I have to stay, uh, stick with some integrity say, hey, we're struggling like everybody else. You know, we, we are really struggling. Um, we're in the midst this week, just on my own team of writing up some of what we call well-being principles to govern how we actually work together. And these are really simple principles that we're still refining. But what we hope we can do is use culture as a way to shape how people are responding to kind of this new normal. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of things that are on our minds. Um, one thing that we're seeing from people is that uh, it is hard to prioritize when we don't have these signals, you know, across each other to indicate in the organization, this is really important and this is important, but not really important. And we're starting to recognize that we have to do a better job when we're in a distributed environment of really indicating what are priorities and how we register those priorities and how we shift our resources. And so we are just simply adopting OKRs. You know, it's been something in various industries, including tech, um, that's been used for a long time, but we feel like uh, it's time for us to recognize the value of something like an OKR process because it will add structure during a time of distribution. So it's, it's a very simple thing. Then we're starting to build on top of that foundation to really look at the human elements. You know, one of the principles we're starting to, to look at is, gosh, it is every employee's responsibility to come up proactively with an explicit written plan of how they're going to balance what's important to them, their life, with their work. And then register that with their with their employer, with their manager to say, hey, my family's really important. I'm going to be off, like just off from five on, or I can't start before eight, or I've got to help my kids between 12 and 3 p.m. And we're trying to give our employees the space of like, not only do we do we want you to do that, we actually expect you to take a little bit of time to be explicit about it. Um, because if you don't do that, the truth is any firm today is going to just chew up every amount of energy and time you have to give it. And so there's, it's just never ending. There's, it is a black hole. And we, we are finding that people are getting frustrated by that. They're realizing, man, I just can't do that. And then another one that we're really focused on is this idea of meetings. It is very common across industries, across the planet right now. For, and it doesn't have to, it's not just executives. It used to be executives who would only complain of this. But now we have essentially our individual contributors saying, I am in meetings eight to 10 hours a day. And then my company expects me to do work. Like, what am I supposed to do? And so we're starting to really attack that and say, what's the best meeting you've ever attended? It's the one that didn't happen. Like, we need to stop thinking meetings are our only vehicle for getting things done in a distributed workplace. We have got to rethink the culture here of how meetings, you know, how we call meetings, how we manage meetings, who needs to attend meetings, all those types of things. So we're in the process of kind of making these things explicit and really um, using technology to help us as we implement them. You know, one of the leading indicators I often talk about with with leaders and particularly when I'm doing keynotes with individuals or with conferences and, and trainings, I, I talk to people and say one of the leading indicators for me of lack of trust is how many how many blind copy emails you receive. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's a leading indicator of a lack of trust. And if I have to have a lot of meetings and everyone has to be invited, how often can I trust those people? How quickly can I delegate to people to make a good decision? I think that's a big indicator. And it's not easy. It's, I mean, what we're talking about today, we know is not easy, right? I mean, we're, we're not trying to disrespect those who right now are saying, you guys don't know. No, we get it. And I, I'm, I'm hearing about people. I mean, I'm trying to get up at two or three in the morning sometimes to do meetings with people in APAC because I just want them to have one meeting where they can actually go to dinner that night with their families. Because if they're working for a U.S. firm, they often don't have dinner with their families. And then they do 200 emails after they tuck their kids into bed. I mean, it is intense. It is so intense. And so I'm trying to change my schedule to meet those global needs as well. What do you think we do here? How do we make it safe? Because I have some leaders right now that are saying, Jared, I wish I could work for you because you said I could explicitly tell you no from 12 to 3, I can go take care of my kids. Some people don't feel like they can do that with their leaders right now. They don't even feel like it's safe. And the other thing I think that you talked about that I'd really like to discuss is this idea that it's not just about efficiency gains, but it really is about humanizing the experience so people contribute their best work, meaning we have to recharge, but we have to be able to improve, meaning we have to give our best ideas. And sometimes we don't feel safe to get safe to give our best ideas. How do we reinculcate that safety and that feeling that we can contribute to this business as well? Well, I think it comes down to um, culture being perhaps one of the strongest tools you have as a leader. You know, culture is to my my view, culture is to an organization what personality is to an individual. It really is what dictates um, how the various members are going to act when they are unsupervised. It really is the thing that binds people together to see if they will actually coordinate towards and work towards a common objective when, you know, you don't have these other more... um, kind of process-oriented elements that bring them together. And particularly at a time like this, culture really matters because culture is the thing that um, allows us to flex a bit. You know, processes, for instance, are built for a specific time and place in an instance, and we're all experiencing new kind of shocks, if you will, to our operating environment. So you can't rely on processes as much as you used to be able to. So I would say, start first by saying we are learning. I personally am learning of the value of culture as a real leadership tool. I'll start there. Then I think, you know, the interesting thing about what I've observed with culture is it's been very much an art rather than a science over the course of, you know, history in so many ways. And so we see that people who understand culture and the value of the human aspect of culture, um, they tend to do very well. And all the rest of us are left out in the cold wondering, man, why does that woman get it? And I don't seem to understand how this all works. And so this is where I think we can use technology to try and make this idea of of culture more of a science and less of an art. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the things that has been really fascinating to us is we have all these signals from one of the things on my team is Microsoft Teams, this product that allows people to do video conferences and work together. And we have all these signals in aggregated form. We can tell you when, you know, a group of individuals starts to wake up in the morning and use Teams and when they go to bed at night. We can tell you about their work and communication patterns over time. Um, we're starting to be able to see that by using those aggregated signals, we can actually take the pulse, you know, take the temperature and say, wowzers. Uh, it looks as though, you know, this org is running really hot. We had the feeling, but it turns out, you know, they're starting two hours earlier each day than they did versus a baseline three months ago. And it looks like they're working an extra three to four hours a night uh, on average, you know, just across two, 300, maybe a thousand people. That's something you never had visibility into. You just couldn't see it, you know? And so in some ways, giving you x-ray goggles to look into the organization, even when distributed and have that data, then allows you to say, we don't want that. We have to take 
real steps to signal to people that we can't have that, to create mechanisms for them to work through it, and then really take, you know, make it make it so, like go out and, and execute your plan. And that's that's the way I think we have to do it. I think it's wonderful to have, you know, what are nice touchy-feely conversations about be a better leader, you know, be humanistic. But until you can bring it into an environment where people can get signal, measure what's going on and say, we can't have that. We're going to we're going to reduce our workday because I believe that's going to get us to, to better output. You know, that's that's kind of the big thing. And so that's that's what we're trying to do in the business. You know, as we look at, at Microsoft 365, which is a business I run, we're really headed in that direction is how do we take all these signals we're getting from people using the tool so much and then help leaders to be better leaders. So that's that's one, you know, we can go into many, that's that's not the whole answer, but that's one of the answers that we think is so important. I mean, that's fascinating research. And the fact that you have that window into so many different organizations and how they're using the technology. And like you said, adding, and I, I'm with you. I think sometimes we have to be able to be brave enough to say, this is way beyond just warm and fuzzy. This is about knowing that when we give people a little bit of space and time to be able to humanize the individual, we actually we're actually more productive. We're actually better that way than to just burn everyone uh, every day, 18 hours nonstop. You know, now there's, there's days when we have to do that. I get that. You know, and there's days when we're going to have to, you know, get really engaged. But there's other days when we really do need to pause and re reconnect. What are some other things you guys are doing um, that might have surprised you uh, in this distributed workplace that, like you said, I just love the fact that we've magnified this by 10 times over this pandemic, maybe what we would have had otherwise. Um, what else is it forcing you guys to do or to think about in terms of how to maintain this culture in a distributed workforce? Well, we've got a couple ideas on our mind. Um, you know, the if I if I take a step back for a moment and and now look at a principle, one of the principles that I would say that is that seems to really resonate with me is if you're trying to brute force something, you probably aren't doing it right. You know, if the only way through uh, on a consistent returned basis is like work harder, work harder, push harder. I would say as a leader, that's probably a signal that like, wait a second, something must not be right. Cause there's going to be a limit to our ability to concentrate and push harder and put in more hours. Like there's just literally a physical limit to our ability. So as a starting point there, we have um, tried to outline what we would say is like a set of things that organizations should be invested in for the future of work and for the future of their employees. And this comes down to what I have just simply called the seven principles. And so I have this idea of uh, reimagining teamwork, culture, and social capital. We haven't talked much about social capital, but reimagining that for a digital distributed world. That's principle number one. Number two is all about well-being, prioritizing individual and organizational well-being, we think is so important. We've talked a little bit about that. We think it's not the be-all and end-all. We think it's one of seven things you need to do. Number three is helping people learn, reinvent themselves and grow as the pace of change increases. We see that creates a lot of stress on individuals and organizations because stuff is moving so fast. Number four is kind of taking advantage and unlocking all the data, knowledge and expertise that already exists in your organization. Number five is uh, process automation and automating workflows so that you can take the burden off people for repetitive stuff that they just really shouldn't be doing in 2020. You know, at this point, we have a lot of really good tech that can unburden them. Number six is really looking carefully across your organization and making sure that you're including everyone in your digital investments. I say it that way because we see a lot of like frontline workers, what we would call first line workers who are not as empowered as the information workers and who could be with technology. There's a lot more we could do. And then finally, number seven, we don't 
we don't talk about this too much when we're just talking um, human, but it's very important, is protecting your people digitally by creating a secure, compliant environment for them to actually work in. That protection is more important than ever before. Um, security breaches and security attacks have gone through the roof during the pandemic. So those are the seven. You know, We just think that they lay out kind of a really nice um, surface area, if you will, for people to think about. Um, it gives you more of a rounded view of like, okay, if I'm going to be more human-centric, if I'm going to put people at the center of my enterprise, how do I do that? And we think asking yourself hard, good searching questions about each of those areas really will lead you to be thoughtful about you know, how you're leading at this time. Jared, I love that. And I love principles. In fact, I, I emphasize principles in my own work as well. So to hear you share those seven principles, I think is absolutely fantastic. For me, those principles become a foundation for us then to describe and to outline what our actions or specifically what our behaviors should look like. And then what I like to do is ask managers to say, hey, once you've described what those behaviors are based on these principles, if these principles are true and we, and we accept them as our truth in our principles, and I think there are universal principles in the world that when we accept and we acknowledge those universal principles, we live better lives. And these principles allow us to make better decisions. If, if that's the foundation, then that should help guide my behavior. And if my behavior is this, then I should design my systems and my processes to help support that behavior, not just the KPI. And so we often will map with, with companies, here's your KPIs, but do you have the behaviors mapped to meet those KPIs? And most don't. And the processes and the systems are guiding and built without the behavior or the culture in mind. And that just becomes the OD or the HR team's job. That's the, that's yeah. the light and fluffy stuff. But what we're saying yeah. is we got to incorporate all of it. We got to yes. incorporate all of this if we want humans to engage. Is that fair? Real leaders, I think, in the 21st century are going to take all of the goodness of OD and HR and really incorporate it into them leading businesses. I just think the days are past when they can turn to some sort of organizational design person and say, hey, will you help out with this on the side? I'm going to go do important stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's just not the way it's going to work. You know, like, again, progress is a two-stroke engine. Like, the, I would say the, the man or woman who thinks that they're going to master the 21st century by simply being more efficient than their competitor is the man or woman that I would short. You just short that company because the truth is it is going to be ingenuity. It's going to be innovation. It's going to be the ability to think about the future and to recognize kind of the quantum leaps that will happen in every industry, you know, from healthcare to computing and everywhere in between, even government. And so that's the, that is the fundamental task is us assembling good teams and getting the most out of what they can can do very uniquely. I think that is in so many places. Even as you look at Amazon, you could argue a company like Amazon, for instance, so focused on, on efficiency, such razor thin margins these poor people operate under. But at the same time, they've been incredible in, in having the discipline to both drive efficiency and be incredibly innovative. You know, And I think they have, they have proven themselves to be um, kind of essentially the, the culture of the moment, you know, and pushing things forward. So it's, I think there's a lot here as we look at what's happening in the world and we look at who's prospering and who isn't doing as well. Well, you, I mean, you certainly work for one of the companies that has been very innovative of late, getting a lot of press for the innovation that has come about from Microsoft. In fact, you were recently interviewing uh, Microsoft CEO. Uh, about this and what were his what was his take on why this is so important? Um, what are you guys doing? How do you describe the kind of the changes you guys have been through over the last few years? You know, Satya Nadella is really incredible CEO. He's been CEO for a little over six years at this point. 
one of the most amazing things uh, for me is I've had a chance to work with him more closely is that he has largely taken the same group of people and driven an entirely different outcome. Now, to be clear, we've hired people during this time. We've helped people move on during six years. But if you look at the group of people and the assets that we have, you know, they're not all that different than they were six years ago. And I think he has a case study in point of this idea that culture can make all the difference. His perspective was, um, gosh, there are a couple of key principles we can build our organization on. Growth mindset was one that was very early on. As he said, the future won't go to the to know-it-alls, it will go to the learn-it-alls. And his ability to instill both an urgency um, and and this idea that like, just learn it. You know, you may not know it, but you can learn it. Those two things have been really powerful. So. I think you know we we don't believe that what we did is necessarily transferable to every organization out there in the same way. We just the same way that the um, you know that that we have to think about every business being different. But I would say that you know there is real power in a culture that will focus on its people and get more from the people than they are currently contributing. And that's you know that's what I've experienced over the last six years here under this leadership. It's it is fascinating, and for you to even you know talk about. The, the assets that you currently have and what you had before and how it's completely changed just by the way people are being treated and the way they're being led makes a big difference. And it's Huge. not that it's not the know-it-alls, it's the learn-it-alls. I love that quote. I mean, I just love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's been, a, you know, it's, um, that doesn't mean it's any less intense. It's an intense place to be. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, we feel like there's a lot of room and respect and even expectation that, hey, you can change the world. You can change your corner of the world. You have to have the ambition to do that. And it really falls in line with what he has set up as our company mission. You know, we want to help everyone achieve more organizations and individuals. Well, Jared, uh, Jared Spataro speaking with uh, Jared here today, vice president at Microsoft. And talking about technology, where this is all headed, I certainly want to be respectful of your time today. I know it's very hard and you're very busy, even though we are trying to take time out of our lives to recharge. I know you're extremely busy. What would you emphasize going forward? What gives you hope? Um, I know it's a broad question, but take it where you'd like in terms of what should people remember, where are we headed? Uh, I, I mean, I have dozens of more questions. We could go for another hour. I hope we can actually do a session two maybe in a couple months. I would love to get... You know, maybe in 2021, let's do another session because so many more questions I feel like are unanswered. But I would love to hear what you're thinking about as you guys move forward. Um, you know, what should people remember from this? And like you said, we're humanizing this. You want technology to help us in innovation. I mean, Jeff DeGraff was another recent guest I had. He was the University of, Minis or University of Michigan uh, innovation professor. And he talks about how technology is helping us to advance innovation as well. And I agree with you. It's not just about efficiencies alone. It is about getting the best and treating our people in a way that they can give their best so that we can innovate and be extremely competitive in the future. I'm going to give you whatever you want to say. It's, it's yours. You know what I'm excited about right now? 2020, I think, can get people down. I just encourage them not to be down. I think the future has never been brighter. I think we've got beautiful, bright days ahead. That doesn't mean things will, will be um, always rosy. But I think there is a path forward for humanity that is beautiful. The moment we're in, I would say, is really incredible because we're recognizing that if we allow ourselves to become servants of technology, it is an unkind master. But if we allow ourselves to be the masters of technology, it can help us do amazing things. So as I look to the future, I just feel like, man, 
we need to lift our chin up. We need to recognize that we can we can rise to the moment and to the occasion and ensure that we use technology to get the best out of our people, that we help them to be well, to accomplish the things that are important to them, to make connections with the people and events and aspects of their lives that really matter. And as we do that, you know, we can do more for kind of humanity in general than we've ever been able to do. The 21st century is a really incredible time. So I, I don't want to have people leave 2020 feeling like they've got to hang their heads and there's a cloud of doom. I recognize there's everything from an election to everything else happening, you know, with the pandemic. Um, but we do not have to sit here as passive takers of the moment. We can definitely rise to the occasion. That's the thought I'll leave with you. I love it, Jared. And I really appreciate that you have this conversation. It, it gets me excited to think that you you and your teams within Microsoft are talking about these really important topics and helping to design technology that can help people to connect and be better at even being human beings. And I think a lot of people would think they couldn't put those two together. And like you said, the past is where we've been, where we're headed is so exciting. Wonderful. Thanks for the time, Max. Great to be with you. Jared, likewise. Thank you for your time today. And let's talk again in 2021, maybe when you can reveal a little bit more about what you guys are doing in Microsoft and, uh, and maybe where it's headed. Sounds great. Thank you, sir.